Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, this week's recap. Uh, been doing a lot of uh, Keras and uh, LSTM, long term short memory, and uh, putting the LSTM and bidirectional memory into a Keras network and feeding uh, data to it uh, to predict things like. Uh, Revenue and versus temperature and temperature conditions um, for ice cream cells. So that was kind of an interesting case study. And uh, what I noticed is that the result of the uh, LSTM uh, on the normalized data, which means data between zero and one. Or uh, you know, negative one to one uh, was uh, in a narrow, more narrow band than uh, what the actual normalized data was, and I, didn't, I was kind of uh, uh, surprised when I saw that result. I'm not sure why it did that, um, unless it had to do something with the normalization but it seemed to be kind of converging on a narrower band of, of prediction. The prediction was quite a bit uh, more narrow, and I'm not sure why. So that's a, that one kind of caught me by surprise, and I'm gonna have to go back and, and analyze that again, but it was using uh, uh, multiple layers and, and then uh, output multiple LSTM layers and then outputting a um, uh, one dense uh, one dense layer, and uh, so that, that's something I wanted to examine. The other one was uh, looking at uh, Casey housing prices and looking at you know all the different uh, factors of you know like whether it had a, a good view, uh, it was rated by one through five, whether it was near oceanfront uh, property based on the zip code, um, also number of bedrooms, number of square feet, number of bathrooms, number of square feet on the lot. And those, all those factors uh, were playing into the price and I used uh, heat maps to segment up the data and to understand you know, uh, what was affecting price. There were certain areas where um, uh, the Price was affected by uh, uh, price was affected by LSTM, or excuse me, was affected by the uh, zip code, and there's others where price was affected by square foot and number of bedrooms. Uh, there were some that were price was affected by uh, the view, oceanfront property, and then. Uh, they also had one factor called grade, and that was interesting because there were certain areas where the grade was quite a bit steeper than the other areas, and that one, I think was in the uh, oceanfront properties, and those were considerably more expensive than other properties. Okay, so put that into a Keras network, and uh, I looked at uh, I looked at different. Uh, uh, 
networks. And the one that seemed to do the best was the Leaky RLU. And because uh, I tried different ones, and uh, uh, that one seemed to be the best one for making the prediction. So uh, I did like that uh, that feature. Um, well, you know it's uh, it's interesting because we're we're in this. Uh, we're in this time of, uh, of rapid uh, data data uh, transformation, where data has become very important. Companies are starting to emerge, and uh, one of the technologies that uh, was has become available is this LSTM. That's over a trillion parameters and uh, had uh, one of the largest uh, uh, network, trading networks on the, on the cloud. It's sponsored by OpenAI Initiative by Google and Microsoft. And uh, they're licensing the usage of their API. And so there's different startup companies that are now using this technology to improve conversations. Uh, there was someone that uh, completed emails, so you type in an email and, uh, and uh, it fills in the, the verbiage, makes it re human readable. Um, that might be something that would be good with me because I, I get kind of fragmented in the way I speak and so you know I could uh, complete my sentences, which would be nice. And, um, then uh, there's uh, ones where they, you know, they were talking about uh, taking shorthand or doctor's notes or things that are kind of cryptic, not cryptic, but encoded, and uh, expanding it out and uh, using this uh, natural language processing and context understanding that uh, is available by GPT-3. I guess the the, the the, the difference between one, two, and three is the number, uh, amount of data that uh, was thrown at them at the, the deep learning network by the development team. And so, trying to think of different businesses that could be created using GPT-3, uh, one I think that would be interesting is a, an API that... Uh, learns how to write code and then through you, you give it like a general description of what you want and then it'll write out the code like for example let's say uh, take uh, these three lists and make it a, a data frame and so it uh, analyzes the list and builds the data frame uh, then you could say set their data type. So it writes the code for uh, determining what the data type is in the data. So it, uh, you know, maybe it can scan the data and examine it and uh, figure out what the um, data types are and uh, then write the code. So you, we can do this in a deterministic way. We can write, you know, uh, dynamic uh, parameters. They go to specific
specific functions that evaluate um, content. So I could write a you know a, a CSV evaluator and then um, make a guess at what the data types are and then provide uh, maybe a, a dictionary that describes the data types of what is predicting the data types for the data frame in R. We can do that in code and, and that's kind of the power of uh, Python is that you can do these type of things in code. Um, and it can be done softly and generically so we can maximize on the, on the language. But the GPT-3, if it can learn from the code base, then it could, you know, it might be able to fill in the blanks uh, and, and actually either use existing code base that's uh, uh, been, been programmed uh, for specific functionality like, uh, you know, finding the data types for the CSV. Or, uh, uh, it could uh, uh, begin to, uh, you know, write write interfaces like in Dart or Django. Um, it could write the could write could write interfaces based on descriptions. You know, like uh, it could say, you know, take this list box and you know create a list box. And, Put a decorator around it and then change the colors to a color that is uh, aesthetically pleasing. So you might not be specific. You might not give it the HTML hash code for the color, but you might instead just uh, describe what your goal is and let the machine have the liberty to come up with something creative. Which is, you know, the word of creative is really fascinating because it means that the machine could use different probabilities to determine what colors might go together. It might use different color theories to, to decide, you know, if, I, if I've got a uh, green font, that I want a white background. If I have a red font, I want a white background. If I have a yellow font, I want to have a green background or something like that. And so you could find the, these, these rules of color that could apply for the selection of this palette. Or it could just select a randomly select a palette, you know, and it could have a list of a thousand different palette combinations where people have already thought through all these uh, color combinations and fonts and types and colors and, and uh, you know, styles and things like that. And so you're not uh, faced with having to make all those decisions while you're coding it. You could uh, take from a general selection. So. Things are get reduced down into things that are really presentable, uh, standard templates that are, are uh, presentable, and then you take more of a template approach to uh, programming. So that that's kind of a nice feature and uh, a powerful feature that uh, could uh, uh, facilitate more programming. And so with with a GPT three, you know, if you come out with a uh, a system where let's say as a uh, as a company you want to subscribe to uh, a GPT-3 GPT code generator where you can give it descriptions and then it can write code similar to a programmer 
and then you started comparing the quality of that code and the time to develop it. Um, if let's say the GPT-3 was programming, let's say at a at first at a junior level programmer level, then you could hand off uh, different uh, tasks that are are simple tasks, maybe quick tasks that you want to have a website spun up with the following information, and you just and it, you know it it knows how to write the SQL queries, it knows how to do the token paste JWT authentication. Uh, it writes the C-sharp code for your web API. And then, uh, you know, maybe it writes the dark code to build a, a simple interface based on your description. It builds a form, uh, puts the authentication in there, sets the color schemes up, and selects it from, you know, a known set of color schemes and generates the code. And let's say that that uh, code generator cost... Uh, uh, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a month. So you're now gone from a ten thousand dollar a month programmer to a hundred dollar a month GPT free coder. And so you know, maybe it's going to fill the need for the, the demand to access data. Um, so the question is, is you know, will the GPT three be able to simulate all of the companies? Uh, data and understand it and then be able to uh, write uh, queries that can accurately extract data and then uh, build data models that it can make predictions on and then uh, connect those data models to user interfaces and reports you know you know you look at the power of uh, power bi it's drag and drop widgets and drag fields to the widgets and then uh, you know set the the order so you set the order up and then you set the graphs that you want to, to display um, it's almost to the point where now if uh, a machine could watch and learn how let's say a power bi person puts together a presentation what are the, the you know what are the recipes that for the widgets you know like uh, have a data view and then you have a, a chart and then you create multiple tabs so you know you can automate that process and then uh, record the user interactions with the with the widgets and find out which widgets are catching attention and then learn from the widgets that are catching attention what the content was about and so then the machine could statistically create more content or more code based on what the uh, what the user is interested in. So you can see kind of this power of uh, of uh, the machine writing code. Now the thing that's really amazing. When we talk about this, I'm all, I'm kind of giving you um, a approach where the machine is uh, the assistant; it's not the the master coder. Because I think at some point the machine could start writing code um, that's using advanced algorithms and mathematics, and we might not even understand. All we might understand is uh, what the interface looks like, 
but as far as the usability, we only care if it gives us the correct results. And so the machine writes this code, and we plug in uh, our data, and then we analyze it and question and examine the data to see if it makes sense. And if it makes sense, then we just continue to use it. We just say it's useful code, and we use it. We don't analyze how the machine built it. We don't look at all the mathematics or the logic that it may have used or all the functions that it may have uh, felt like to create uh, programmable uh, functions as it builds you know, from a list of programmable functions and it, it then writes uh, code based on, encodes based on these programmable functions. We don't think that way, but I think that's the way the world is moving towards those programmable functions because that's the way the machine would actually begin to start to work, is that it would create a series of functions. It would then become aware of those functions, and then it would begin to, to build trees or hierarchies of, of pipelines, per se, of those functions. Now... And a case where I saw this was done was in uh, Mongo. I've been studying MongoDB. And uh, in one chart, in one case, they do uh, aggregations, and they build aggregation pipelines. So you do a match, you do a projection, you do a, um, a sort, and, you know, it, uh, it builds these different stages of... In a pipeline, and then you get you have your input, and then you get your output. Your input would be your your collections, your database collections, and uh, it has a tree structure. You access that through dot notation, and then through these different stages, you pull it out. So now, if GPT three could learn how to write uh, Mongo code, and it was using these stages, why couldn't it start to look at uh, processes as really layers of stages? And so then it starts to build these code that help um, codify different stages, and then it builds pipelines of stages, and then it could try different uh, combinations in these pipelines to find the, the pipeline series of stage combinations that give the right output. Well, you know, the, the, a good case of example is like when we were looking yesterday at MongoDB uh, looking for missing data. So there was uh, you know, some stage processes where we set uh, return values equal to zero and that then signified a missing data and then we looked for using the different stages looked for results in the collections of missing data where it didn't have certain uh, fields because in Mongo you're not guaranteed that certain fields will exist um, and so because it's a non-structured database well, so, you know, if you can, we can do the same thing there, why can't GPT-3 do the same thing with writing code base? So let's say it's, you know, we get a machine that's starting to write code. And, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, how fast can a 
machine fill up a gigabyte. So then we say, okay, well, then we wrote a gigabyte of code. How fast can it fill up uh, a terabyte? So, it, you know, it writes a terabyte of code, which, you know, for a human being is enormous, you know, to, to write that much code. Um, and so, you know, if we're, we're talking about a gigabyte, we're usually talking about something like Visual Studio, uh, you know, where it's, it's got a lot of, has a lot of components, and those uh, components are all working together. But when we're talking about machine writing code, you know, it has to get access to all this open source code. So let's say that it learns all of the open source code in the world. So it now knows how to uh, access the operating system and knows how to write to the specific APIs of the operating system. And then it, suppose that it starts to uh, begin to uh, uh, analyze the what it's doing and it starts generating its own new code maybe at the operating system level. So we, you know, we can't just limit GPT-3 to applications, but what if the GPT-3 started writing kernel code? Uh, uh, you know, it, was, it writes different code for different uh, hardware chips, like, uh, you know, NVIDIA, AMD, ARM. You know, these are all expensive endeavors that companies spend lots of money writing for this specific hardware. So it writes its own proprietary or customized code uh, from the hardware up. And so, you know, uh, let's say, you know, let's say GPT-3 at first, you know, does the work of maybe an amateur company in writing its code. But then as it gets more experience that uh, companies begin using GPT-3 to write all of their operating system code. And then what if at some point the GPT-3 writes the most complex operating system known to mankind and every two weeks it's writing a new update and expanding that functionality. So, you know, we think about the functionality that uh, Microsoft can provide and, you know, through major releases like uh, Windows 10, over XP, uh, you know, Linux, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of functionality that developers are pulling on to create, you know, new look and feel and user experience and so forth. But what if the machine starts creating new interfaces and new, uh, new look and feels and it's doing it at a much more accelerated pace. Well, that's the, the thing that uh, becomes very interesting. Uh, you know, at some point, then the interfaces become really good, very intuitive, very useful, more information at a glance, uh, better interactions, answers the questions better. And so that, you know, we, we start to depend on uh, GPD-3 to do the hard work and uh, just like, you know, we used to have word processing and editors, now we have Grammarly that uh, uses uh, AI to, you know, correct our grammar. We had Dragon 
uh, and it does you know, different um, functionality. But those systems, you know, are, are very proprietary. You have LexisNexis for legal. And a lot of it's not being shared universally because it's not open source. But what if these, uh, these functionality are then GPD-3 starts to uh, uh, solve more automation across more domains very rapidly so that we see this rapid expansion it was as if we had, you know, this proliferation of, let's say, a million developers, and it suddenly jumps to a billion or a trillion, you know. So you have all this code that's being generated by the machine. So it's just a, uh, a phenomenal proposition of when machines start to begin to write their own code, what could happen. Uh, we can't can't narrow that down and say, well, okay, that's limited by the power consumption. But you look at how much power the cloud is consuming, it's a phenomenal amount of power. And, you know, we don't know the total number of servers that exist. But what happens in the world <coughs> when we go from a, a billion servers to a trillion servers? Or what happens if we now move uh not just in massive parallel processing, but we move to quantum computing, and uh, we're, we're solving harder problems faster. So how will that uh, impact? How will that impact our our world that we know? And you know, have we reduced down poverty? Have we provided clean power? Have we provided clean energy at a cost? Uh, point that the world can afford. And I still think all those technologies are still very expensive. That information uh, is still very expensive, but the world could see a $10 computer, and I've talked about that in the past. Uh, we could have electricity that's a thousand times cheaper. But what will probably happen is, I and I see this in uh, the Nikola fuel cell semi, and it's in a struggle to uh, uh, hit production and uh, become a mainstream in uh, large heavy heavy truck truck transport is that the technology does exist it is provable and it, it is expensive because of the initial research and development cost uh, that was invested into it but you have large companies like GM that's investing large amounts of money into this technology into the large truck industry because they know that there's so much money uh, at, at uh, opportunity that they don't want to lose that possible presence to capitalize on that emerging growth. Because uh, let's say that the trend for uh, uh, zero emissions continues to grow and uh, we, we end up starting to pay taxes on carbon which has been talked about for some time and that there's carbon quotas and things like that for companies. And, uh, you know, this represents a huge infusion of money for, for the government, but it also uh, becomes a you know, heavier burden for companies that, uh, that they start now looking at the future cost and, uh, and then they uh, want to uh, reduce down 
their risk and so they start you know moving some of their fleets that are short run fleets to electric and um, and the long long haul and the trains began to switch from diesel to hydrogen now we have a sudden paradigm shift and once uh, you know you have that level of commitment towards hydrogen and the proof it's like the um, hybrid cars with that were gas electric that at first there was some skepticism that you know whether or not they work but now everyone's very convinced that they work and um, same with electric vehicles with the Tesla vehicles everyone's very convinced that a Tesla vehicle works but now you have the introduction of lucid air batteries that are have the 500 mile range and they're just with the 900 volt recharge capability and those are so so appealing because of their rapid recharge times and the long range that uh, that you know that they are um, viable competitors against gasoline and so you see this new clean better feel like uh, 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 the energy at the bottom uh, bottomless well book talked about where electricity can displace um, you know other types of energy like diesel or gasoline or the hydrocarbon fill fuels and so we need uh, a way to mass produce the hydrogen in a way that is cost effective so one idea was put nuclear power plant near the oceans and like uh, and then you have a cooling system um, and uh, you, you can then utilize that to uh, desalinize water and also produce hydrogen so you get the best of both worlds there you got clean water you get hydrogen uh, fuel production too and then you have a way to distribute that hydrogen. Now, how do you distribute that hydrogen? That's the big problem. Well, it can be uh, it can be combined with uh, uh, into uh, a hydrate and transported that way, a metal hydrate, or you know under high pressure, or you could uh, um, we could have um, it uh, combined with a different chemical or something that um, is easier to break apart the hydrogen from its bond and, and so you, you have like some sort of electrochemical process that has a low cost but it has a high high quality for transportation those are some problems that have to be solved but then you look at the fact that you've got uh, what 3.7 million heavy trucks on the road and uh, as you look at the, you know, all that um, uh, transportation costs and so forth, it uh, it has those uh, elements to it that are um, important to figuring out the uh, cost for the. Consumer, so they have to put it in a place for the hydrogen refilling stations. They have to be built, and uh, you know there has to be enough that 
you know, that you can find a hydrogen refilling station, fill up your truck, and then make your uh, loads on time. So, um, at first, there's going to be resistance to moving away from diesel and making the commitment to hydrogen, but eventually, um, that uh, as more more companies are adopting and manufacturing plants are uh, put in place that they can produce, that, uh, that that will become the new standard. And so you could see a future where hydrogen becomes the new fuel and you'll be running on uh, electric motors uh, with uh, hydrogen fuel cells powering those electric motors. So these are interesting times. And if you get to that level, then why can't you... Um, facilitate uh, flying cars. So I was looking at, you know, a set of flying cars. They cost anywhere between $200 to $500,000. And and they all require you to have a a pilot's license. But in the era of AI, why do you need to have uh, a pilot? Why do you need to have a pilot fly you? Let the machine fly you. And so you have the uh, you you have uh, subscribed to a company almost like a air taxi that uh, will provide your navigation for your uh, flying car, and you know so you can move from point A to point B, two hundred to two hundred and fifty miles an hour, maybe some cases three hundred miles an hour, and uh, you know much faster transportation than ground transportation. Uh, and, you know, you're, it's like having a little small plane in the sky. I know, well, that's exactly what it looked like in the sky, uh, except with the exception that, that it could land on a, uh, uh, a runway, fold, retract its wings back, and drive on a road, just like a, uh, a, a car. And in some cases, they only have three wheels. and others, they have four. And uh, top speeds for the vehicles are around 100 miles an hour. But uh, it's an inter- interesting as we move towards that. And none of them are electric. They're all uh, gas-powered. But what happens in the future if uh, the planes are electric or hydrogen-based uh, transportation? So you, you see Nicola's not interested in creating a um, electric plane or a hydrogen-based plane or a hydrogen tank um, train, but yet in France, they do have now the first hydrogen-based train that uh, is not powered by electric lines. And it uh, is running uh, very effectively. And the hydrogen tanks are above the train on the top of its roof. And so this is a classic example where you've got now a great concept. It can be uh, replicated in the next few years. And you could uh, uh, begin to uh, either retrofit buses with hydrogen tanks on top or uh, and then replace uh, the motor with a fuel cell stack and uh, um, the wheels with uh, uh, 
with a high, uh, electric motors. And the, the problem is electric motors are very large. So, you know, you have to come up with a way to reduce down the size of a 500 horsepower motor. Let's say if you could cut that size down by a tenth, then you could put have maybe in-wheel in placed 500 horsepower motor. And uh, then you would, you would uh, remove the need for a powertrain and uh, uh, the fuel cell stack then would transmit power directly to those in-place in, uh, in wheel motors. And uh, so then you could capture a large uh, portion of electric of transportation that is using electric to move uh, people around in, in bulk in large cities. So you could cover the heavy transportation, you could cover the trains, you could cover planes, and those that transition to hydrogen could be done uh, in a in a rapid manner, much more rapid than we have in the past because um, of uh, technology. And the the question is, is how much will it cost? You know, how much would it cost to retrofit a uh, heavy equipment? Let's say it costs you know a hundred thousand. And those are costs that have to be invested by the company up front to accomplish. <coughs> so, you know, it's challenging to reach that level of <coughs> commitment cost unless there's a driving force behind it. Well, it's a beautiful day. Lots to do today. And, uh, you know, had a lot of things that I've been thinking about <coughs> over the years as, uh, and over the last few weeks since I've had, uh, you know, the recap on my thoughts for the week. And hopefully this uh, uh, will give you some idea into things that are changing because they are changing very rapidly. And we are seeing this beginning of uh, job to place displacement and when it, it starts to occur it will be quite uh, shocking I think at first because uh, as you go in you know we, we have, like we have the introduction to Syria it seemed pretty seamless you know we were able to seamlessly integrate into Siri and use the voice recognition technology but uh, at the same time uh, what will happen with uh, uh, robots and automation is that it will come in and uh, it'll come in in strong force and uh, and then we will see jobs be displaced in a rapid manner and the government will play a heavier role uh, as more people are displaced by uh, automation and uh, you know the regulations and cost and benefits will have to be increased and so you know more socialization will probably occur which uh, means heavier taxation okay well thank you for listening and uh, we hope that uh, you have a uh, a good uh, uh, weekend and talk to you soon